Welcome to The Plague. This is the podcast where we look not just at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but at the societal plagues, the plagues created by human socioeconomic systems that make this coronavirus plague more virulent and dangerous. Uh, I'm your host, L.M. Bogad, broadcasting from my sheltering-in-place bunker here. Uh, in every episode, we will examine a different societal plague uh, that cross-indicated with the coronavirus uh, makes it much worse. So the coronavirus infects the human body, but what illnesses in our body politic make us more vulnerable? Economic inequality, environmental devastation, labor precarity. We pick a different social plague each week, something that we can actually change by making decisions uh, as a society and talk with an expert on that topic about how that plague makes this pandemic worse. Uh, the plague of the week uh, right now is rainforest destruction and the destruction of biodiversity. Uh, our expert today, guest, as I'm very honored and pleased to have uh, on the show, is Jeff Conant. Jeff Conant is a writer, poet, social and ecological justice advocate, world traveler, father, gardener, beekeeper, baker and tender of life in all her fine forms. Jeff directs the International Forests Program for Friends of the Earth, a well-known environmental organization. The program's primary campaign, Land Grabs, Forests, and Finance, pressures financiers and corporations to halt destruction of tropical rainforests and human rights abuses that come along with it. Jeff has worked on issues of international development and ecology for two decades, including advocacy for climate justice at the UN and other global arenas. He's the co-author of A Community Guide to Environmental Health, a grassroots educational manual published in over a dozen languages, and author of A Poetics of Resistance, the Re Revolutionary Public Relations of the Zapatista Insurgency, and translator of Wind in the Blood, Mayan Healing, and Chinese Medicine. You can learn more about his work at his website and blog site, jeffconant.com. And uh, we're also going to hear some of his amazing poems on this subject, which is also on that website. Uh, it's a bestiary for the end of times. You've got the play. I got a fever. You've got the play. Let's get into it, Jeff. Talk to us about what does destruction of the rainforest and the extinction of other species by human activity have to do with uh, why this coronavirus has gone so pandemic and why so many people are getting sick from it? Indeed. Uh, Larry, thank you for having me on Le Pest, the plague. Um, I think the premise is absolutely brilliant. Really happy to have the chance to talk to you from my shelter in place here. Um, yeah, the, the, something I've been working on for a good number of years now is, um, taking various actions to try to stop the prevent, stop the, the, the destruction of the world's tropical rainforests and the, the cultures that depend on them, depend directly on them. And what do rainforests have to do with, um, uh, with coronavirus and infectious diseases? It's not an intuitive link, especially for 
those of us who are, um, you know, in our society, we're so, um, so separated, so alienated from the natural environment that it's just really no longer intuitive for us to understand that everything is, is connected at the planetary scale. And it turns out that, uh, so rainforests are the greatest uh, harbor of terrestrial biodiversity, you know, massive species, some of which uh, we know and many of which have not even been discovered by science. And uh, we are losing rainforests at an astonishing rate, um, about 40 football fields worth of rainforest every minute get cut down around the world. Um and rainforests are essential to stabilizing the global climate. About 25% of global climate emissions actually come from rainforest destruction. Uh, rainforests are essential for regulating rainfall. Rainforests are essential because about 25% of the world's medicines come from rainforests. Um, and, of course, indigenous peoples around the entire tropical belt of the world, you know, live in and depend on uh, the rainforests as, as their homes, as their source of, of, of uh, medicines, food, spirituality, culture. And one thing um, that has a lot of us talking about the importance of rainforests right now is that rainforests, the, the biodiversity in, in rainforests, harbors all kinds of microbes, viruses, bacterias that are not necessarily yet even known to science. And uh, that means that there are all kinds of viruses, potentially lethal, um, that live there naturally, harbored in, in the species in these forests, that when the rainforests are cut down, when habitat is destroyed, when keystone species are um, eliminated, those viruses have nowhere left to go except to jump into human hosts. Um, and a lot of epidemic uh, infectious diseases that we've been familiar with over the last decades actually come from uh, that process, from animals in the rainforest coming into contact with humans um, and passing on these viruses. Folks will remember the Ebola um, plague in, in oh, yeah. uh, West Africa from 2014, 2015. Um, that came from bats and chimpanzees into humans in deforested areas. Um, in the uh, U.S., the one we're most familiar with is Lyme disease, which um, is uh, carried by a tick that lives on all kinds of mammals in the you, you know in the North American forests. And when those mammals um, disappear because their habitat is destroyed, there are very there's the, the tick passes mostly to the white-footed mouse, which comes in contact with human hosts in you know fragmented woodlands um, destroyed by suburban sprawl. And people right. come into contact with, with Lyme disease. Before 1975, there was, um, you know, no, no one had ever encountered this disease before. And right now, it turns out that um, one of the most likely origins of the coronavirus is from the pangolin, which is a, um, a scaly little critter that um, is trafficked, meaning, you know, poached and traded in markets around the world. Um, and pangolins uh, were being sold live in markets in China and uh, carried this virus that had never infected humans before. Suddenly, um, 
virus leaps from the pangolin host to the human host um, because there's no inherited or evolved immunity in humans against this disease. It spreads completely unchecked. And mm. next thing we know, right. we're facing a global pandemic. So just so, so we understand, uh, in a healthy, complex ecosystem that's not being devastated for Profit. And by the way, why are we cutting down these rainforests? I mean, they're they're biodiverse. They're carbon sinks that help to prevent climate disaster. Lots of species live there. Lots of human beings. They're sacred sites as well, and just places to live. What's happened? What's the why? Is humanity, or at least I should say, a certain part of humanity, destroying? Well, you, you like hamburgers and cookies, right, oh, right, Lair? Uh, I mean, I don't want to show you the pantry in my bunker. Yeah, and what's going on in there? So but, we're yeah. cutting down these rainforests for you, so that you know, while mm. you're sheltering in place, you can have you know cookies and 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 uh, soy lattes and hamburgers. <laughs> um, and break that down a little, because uh, yeah, I know it has to do with palm oil, but like, let's talk about that for a bit. The, that that insatiable uh, appetite that we should say the industrialized or wealthy nations have that's leading to this destruction. Yeah, obviously mm -hmm. I'm being a little bit facetious there, but um, Good. We, in, need in fact, we need a little humor. There we <laughs> <Right> go. <now. laughs> the, you know, when we think about um, forests being cut down, the general assumption is that they're being, you know, that we're cutting down trees to use as timber. Well, that's not the case at all. I mean, the timber industry is one of the, you know, one of the causes of forest destruction, obviously. But um, for the last decade or so, maybe more, the largest drivers of rainforest destruction worldwide are um, commodity agriculture products, um, industrial, industrially produced palm oil, industrially produced soybeans, uh, cattle, sugar, rubber, um, and paper and pulp, um, because for all of those, you know, all those commodities in different ways, um, the, the rainforest is cleared and turned into massive plantations. In the case of palm oil, a typical palm oil plantation is about, uh, 25,000 acres of land, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, the, the, the tree that produces this oil uh, is a natural rainforest tree, but what's happened is industry is planting these, is, is basically clearing massive areas of rainforest and replacing them with monoculture plantations. So you're taking, you know, innumerable species that sequester, you know, volumes and volumes of, of, of CO2, um, and you're wiping it out and replacing it with one single tree that uses a lot of agrochemicals, that requires a lot of water, that has very uh, minimal uh, carbon sequestration ability. And what is the uh, what is the oil palm tree being used for? It's being used to produce palm oil to put in cookies, in cakes, in um, donuts, in, you know, cosmetics, uh, lipstick, toothpaste. About 50% of the products on our supermarket shelves have palm oil in them in one form or another. Mm. Uh, now, yeah. that's interesting. And we should get in towards the end of the podcast or later on, we talk about various cures, uh, you know, for the societal plagues, uh, vaccines and antidotes. So we can talk about how we could change that behavior. So let's get into that later. But I'm so glad you explained why these rainforests are being destroyed uh, by the sort of uh, more powerful nations and corporations. Um, can you tell us again about that carbon sequestration part, not incidentally, like how important in the 
fight against climate change uh, are the continued existence of rainforests yeah. as compared to fossil fuels being burned is also a major issue, of course. Yeah, I think, I mean, at this point, we're all pretty well aware that the, the leading cause of, of greenhouse gas emissions is, you know, the burning of fossil fuels, and that absolutely needs to stop in order to transition us to a a clean and just economy. Um, but after fossil fuels, the second leading cause of, of uh, climate change is the destruction of the world's forests. Uh, I think, you know, folks will have a general sense that, you know, humans breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. Trees breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen, right? So um, the way we talk about it is trees sequester CO2. So mm -hmm. when you cut down a tree, you're, you know, on the one hand, you're releasing all of the carbon in that that's been sequestered um, or absorbed into, into that tree's body. You're also allowing the the, the CO2 in the soil to escape. Um, and at the same time, you're destroying one of your best uh, CO2 sequestration, you know, um, some people say technologies. Um, in any case, mm -hmm. you know, trees absorb CO2. So they're one of our best hopes for actually absorbing, the, you know, the existing uh, carbon in the atmosphere. And uh, so about... Uh, up to 25% of global warming gases come from the destruction of the world's forests. And uh, a, a kind of astonishing fact is that the world's rainforests contain more CO2 than all of the world's fossil fuel um, reserves combined. That's amazing. So if you destroyed all of them, you would unleash more uh, CO2 than if you burned all the reserves that we know of. of yeah. Of, oh, that's amazing. Um, you know, I would be willing to change the ingredients in my cookies to to address that if that was part of it. Ingenious. I, that's, that's, I know that's a big... That's a big leap for you. <laughs> big Larry, leap. Not, yeah, for all yeah. of you hey, folks at home, you know, stuff. That's a your, lot of... That's, yeah, that's right. Um, so I just want to make sure now bringing it back to the coronavirus, just to make our, uh, you know, our point here, it's uh, what you're saying, or maybe you could break it down a little more clearly, in a healthy a healthier situation, the rainforest isn't being destroyed. It's biodiverse. Of course, we know viruses are, are part of nature since the beginning. So we know they're out there. They don't necessarily have to jump to humans from animals and cause a pandemic. How does it function in a healthier situation where, of course, there are viruses, but they're not as virulent and spreading like wildfire fire through the human uh, species because we're doing the right thing by the rainforest. Yeah. And in order to contrast to what's happening. Now. Indeed. Well, mm -hmm. it, any habitat, um, can be what is called a disease reservoir. That's a, you know, mm -hmm. a, a health ecology term, meaning right. that there are potential diseases locked up in the biodiversity in any ecosystem and the diversity itself, you know, keeps, those disease, those those viruses uh, occupied, if you will, it keeps them, you know, in their in their natural habitat, causing no harm to anybody, um, <coughs> because they're, as you said, simply, you know, another, uh, <laughs> if you will, another critter in the system. Right. Um, but when that habitat is destroyed, when the biodiversity is, you know, is is um, drastically reduced. 
you know, if you picture, um, you know, picture, say, a, a field on fire, you've got a field of, you know, wild grasses and plants of all sorts. And this is something I've witnessed myself. I don't know if other folks have, but that you, you, you set fire to that field. And what you're going to see is you're going to see lots of mice and rodents and, you know, all of the little critters that live there fleeing. Um, you know, getting out of the way. And in a sense, that's what we're talking about with viruses. The, you know, habitat is destroyed and those creatures, those organisms need somewhere else to go. And and so they're yeah. going to come to the dominant species that occupies such a big part of the, the biome nearby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, that's... that's uh, and I'm not saying that it's not necessarily that coronavirus itself uh, traveled that pathway. We do believe that it did leap from pangolins uh, into humans, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other, like I said, Ebola a few years ago um, came from, basically there was a cycle where bats and chimpanzees passed this, the Ebola bacteria back and forth. And when a lot of the forests were cut down in Liberia and communities of people end up living, you know, sort of closer to the natural habitats of bats and chimpanzees, and in some cases end up, you know, eating um, both bats and chimpanzees um, as, you know, local fare, um, the virus mutates and passes into, or in that case, bacteria mutates and passes into people. Um, Well, we know that mutation is random and it just happens over time naturally. If you keep increasing the chances of just the wrong mutation leaping to humans, if you just keep rolling the dice a lot more by doing these destructive things, it's going to happen more often, if I understand you. Yeah. Um, if we keep destroying the habitat and increasing the exposure to species that have no choice but to come come at us, and then we're, as you've pointed out, trafficking them and eating them when you know, uh, be, uh, we're just making it more likely, uh, odds wise, that it's going to keep happening. Yeah. This won't, exactly. This won't be the last pandemic. This in other words. no. If we this won't be the last pandemic. We you know scientists are are assuming that um, if we continue to destroy the rainforests at the rate we are, there will just be you know wave upon wave of uh, of new pandemics coming from mm-hmm. those disease reservoirs. So as basically, we should be extremely grateful uh, of the rainforest. They are a carbon sink. They are one of the breaks on climate disaster that we desperately need. Not We shouldn't be destroying them for that reason. They're a carbon sink, but they're also this, uh, how did you put it? What was the term you used? A reservoir, a disease reservoir? Disease reservoir. Like, mm-hmm. you know, to, they do all of these things uh, and they contain all of that. And destroying them is opening up a sort of Pandora's box that will unleash upon us as it already as we're already starting to do i think it, that's important for us to to contemplate yeah. we have many reasons not to destroy rainforests that don't have to do with our self-interest like we just shouldn't do that um, but there is also a, a species-wide self-interest uh, to not destroy these habitats um, now thank you for bringing that out now of course as we've discussed we're going to get through, or I, many of us will get through this pandemic. I hope as many as possible. Um, 
But of course, there will be more, as you just pointed out. There will be waves of them because our behavior is not changing. And we keep, we're still doing this activity that uh, brings it back. And there will be more pandemics. So that brings us to, to further abuse this medical metaphor I've been working with, with societal plagues that make an actual plague more dangerous. The destruction of uh, biodiversity in the rainforest being our, our first one we're examining. So what's the antidote? Or is there an antidote? Or is there a vaccine? Or is there even a palliative or a partial cure for this social plague, Jeff? If we think of deforestation as our own self-inflicted plague, what what are we doing? What can we do yeah. uh, to, to deal with this? You know, if you look at, just like with all of the other environmental, you know, uh, tragedies that we're witnessing, this, the destruction of the world's rainforests has happened largely during our lifetimes. I mean, yours and mine. I'm about 50 yeah. years old. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, you know, this trend began after the world wars. It began in the 70s and 80s, really, of the destruction of the world's rainforests for commodity agricultural uh, production. And um, it's, in fact, it's, it's, it's not for, you know, feeding the world. We're not producing a whole lot of essential foods. We're producing junk food. We're producing, you know, cookies and, and donuts. And um, so if you look at palm oil, it's going into cookies and donuts, like I said. If you look at soybeans, which is the largest driver of deforestation uh, in, uh, in Latin America, the biggest use of soy is to feed cattle and um, and chickens and, and livestock and so forth. Um, and then, of course, cattle itself is one of the key drivers because the ranchers cut down the rainforest to grow cattle to sell their beef to the big trading companies that end up selling them to McDonald's, say. So, you know... Writ large, we need to reduce our consumption, but specifically reduce our consumption of, you know, reduce our overconsumption. Um, we're eating way too high on the food chain. Uh, eating less meat is a good idea. Eating less packaged food is a good idea and so forth. Um, but the particular angle that, um, that I've been working in my campaign with Friends of the Earth um, is to actually stop the money, to target the, the financing of, of the companies that are producing these commodities because, you know, it's, it, trying to boycott these things is going, it's just, it's too big. The, the scale of consumption is, is too big. But what, um, what I've found in my research from several years ago is that a lot of the big companies that are producing these things, some that are familiar to folks will include Cargill, Archer Daniels, Midland, um, are some of the U.S. companies who, who you know, are massive companies that traffic in, in soy, cattle, palm oil, et cetera. That soy, palm oil, et cetera, ends up, uh, you know, being sold in consumer goods by PepsiCo, Nestle, Kraft, uh, Yum Brands, all of these you know, these massive multinational um, consumer goods companies. And all of them are financed by a handful of big banks and uh, by investment firms who manage, in many cases, our own, you know, 401ks and IRAs and, and mutual funds. And um, none of the big investment firms that are, you know, owners 
of these companies have any policies in place uh, to ensure that what they're investing in is not destroying the planet. So the effort that I've been engaged in is to try to um, to look at the big investment firms, BlackRock, Vanguard, um, J.P. Morgan Chase, and the big banks, and pressure them uh, to adopt no deforestation policies, to pressure them to either divest from the companies that are destroying the rainforest or engage, as they say in the, in the, in the lingo with those companies to force them to, you know, use better practices. This is a, it sounds like this is like finding the right targets and having an action plan that will put, that will leverage pressure on them to make better decisions. Uh, so it's not just appealing to their better conscience, but actually trying to change the financial math for them in some way so that they will stop financing and providing the financial fuel for this destruction, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and it is, yeah, it's, it's uh, among other things, we do sort of make uh, what you call a risk-based argument and say, you know, if you destroy the world's rainforest, then everything else in your portfolio is going to go up in smoke. So <laughs> if you, you know, do the long-term calculations, it's simply not, you know, good business. Um, right. At the same time, we drive, uh, you know, public protests, digital and, uh, you know, back in the old days when we could actually get together on the streets, um, <laughs> we, we would uh, do uh, what we call brand damage or reputational damage to the companies, uh-huh. you know, name and shame the, 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 the PepsiCo's and the Nestle's of the world in order right. to, you know, increase um, the, the reputational risk to them of engaging in these practices. That's great. Can you give us some examples? Because I know you've scored some victories and, uh, I think in, in very difficult times, uh, and very grim times, we need to hear stories of some victories and to remember that it, it absolutely is possible and we can change these things. And I know that your movement has, uh, has had some successes and maybe you could just give us an examples of some of these actions that you've uh, organized. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it runs the gamut. There's big, big, bigger victories and smaller victories. Uh, one that I'll mention before getting to the the real fun stuff. I mean, some of this mm-hmm. is very sort of wonky and in the weeds, but um, mm-hmm. CalPERS, the California Pension Fund, it's the largest public pension fund in the country, um, turns out has hundreds of millions of dollars invested in uh, palm oil companies. And we launched a campaign to raise their awareness about this. They didn't even know. You know, they don't necessarily know what they're invested in because they're invested in everything. Um, And after, you know, a lot of reports, some op-eds by some powerful, you know, politicians in California and simply showing up again and again at their investment meetings, they adopted a uh, deforestation risk policy, which means that they any company in their portfolios that they find is involved in um, destruction of tropical rainforests, they now have a fiduciary duty to um, reach out to that company and push them to adopt better practices. So that's one. Um, Having Mm -hmm. achieved that, uh, that was in 2018, we got CalPERS to adopt this deforestation policy. um, Which is billions of dollars, to be clear. Like, that's a huge fund. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, yeah, billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, in fact. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And about a year and a half ago, we turned our attention to a, a firm that not a lot of people knew at the time, but it turns out it's the largest money manager in the world, BlackRock. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and me have had some good times um, <laughs> taking them down. So uh-huh. we, uh, we launched a campaign we call BlackRock's Big Problem um, because it turns out that BlackRock is the world's largest investor in fossil fuels and the world's largest investor in all of the agro commodities that, that cause rainforest destruction. And after some years of trying to bring this to their attention in you know benign ways through meetings and reports and so forth, um, my organization, Friends of the Earth, got together with uh, Sierra Club and the Sunrise Project and Amazon Watch and a bunch of other, you know, environmental NGOs, and we launched this Black Rocks Big Problem campaign, and um, it involves a whole lot of different things, but one thing um, that you and I did, Larry, that was a lot of fun, we've done a couple, <laughs> let's see, where should, there was the time we went to um, the annual general meeting of Black Rock in New York uh-huh. City, um, mm-hmm. And uh, the CEO of BlackRock is a man named Larry Fink, who is known uh, as the the uh, the conscience of Wall Street. Which I don't know, what, you know, how much <laughs> does that uh, is that is not not an oxymoron? Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, yeah. And um, as I recall, Larry. Uh, yeah. You played yeah, the role of, of Larry Fink. Um, it's ringing a bell. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. were you remember this? Uh, we, well, I wasn't lying. I mean, my name is Larry. Exactly, uh, my nickname anyway. So, so L M Bogad here. Um, so Larry Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, every year he writes a letter uh, to the business community. That's sort of the state of of capital. And <laughs> in recent years, uh, these letters tend. The reason he's called the conscience of Wall Street is because his letters have a little bit of a preachy uh, social conscience tone and um we find you know we've found that curious because his company is invested in you know so many awful things mm-hmm. and um so um as i recall you larry took larry's letter and um did a little edit to it in red pen and yeah. highlighted some things and um it's just the basic premise as i remember was what if he meant it and really meant it and woke up at three in the morning on the day. You have to have a theatrical premise, you know, for these street theater actions. And first he wakes up at three or four in the morning and goes, oh, my God, no, climate disaster. No, really, I mean it. And how, how would he frantically scribble in red ink on that, uh, you know, uh, declaration on that document to amend and improve his uh his analysis and what he wanted to say to the stockholders about extinction and deforestation. And, Indeed. and so there are some jokes in there in the marginalia. There's little flow charts of him where I pretended he's writing, <laughs> writing those things, but based on the things that friends of the earth and, and you uh, were talking about, that was the fuel for what I wrote in the, in the declaration. There. Right. So there, and their uh, so their annual general meeting where they, you know, give their, uh, annual update to their shareholders is at a a five-star hotel in midtown manhattan right across the street from their flagship offices and we had um, brought a number of uh, indigenous leaders from the amazon and elsewhere um, to attend the meeting and uh, we had a bunch of people 
outside the building, you know, protesting with banners and megaphones and so forth. And then we had you, Larry, dressed in a suit, uh, being a repentant Larry Fink and <laughs> handing this letter out to everybody that came into the meeting at, you know, seven in the morning, I believe it was. Yeah. And all of a sudden, there we're standing by the entrance to this five-star hotel, handing this thing, you know, this letter out to all these guys in suits. And along comes Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. And yes. um, and I, I think you didn't quite grok that at, at no. first. And you and your, your partner in the my, shtick. My colleague, Brandon Wolf, who's a wonderful local uh, performer and uh, teacher, professor and, and writer, uh, was working with me and he, Larry Fink walked right past him and he just said, Oh, would you like to see Larry's updated memo for the meeting as we were doing with everybody? And to his credit, Larry Fink chuckled and said, Oh yeah, sure. I'd like to see that. And he did take it. And, uh, my jaw was dropped. And, uh, I, I have to admit, I don't know why I didn't think he would just walk across the streets. I don't know if just because he's a billionaire, I thought he would take a helicopter a from one side of 54th street to the other. Exactly. But it is nice to know that with his retinue, you know, he was there with his entourage that sometimes you can hand somebody, uh, something and they laugh a little bit, you know, and they take it and that they are also a human anyway. Yeah. Um, and that so, became, yeah. I mean, since then we've scaled, you know, scaled up. Um, but that became one of the first moments when uh, the head of this $7 trillion investment firm uh, became aware that he was uh, being targeted. Yeah. I think it was an interesting moment, Jeff, because you told me about what happened inside. It was like my little intervention was on the outside, giving these things out. And of course, you had these amazing people on the inside to give the really serious uh, statements using stockholder uh, shareholder proxies, right, to come in and, and give the really serious stuff. And my understanding is uh, on the inside, uh, giving that mockery, that kind of a gently satirical, like the positive set satirical uh, uh, reworking of his memo to him in his name, right, uh, was almost like a, handing a calling card to someone. You know what I mean? Like my card. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Hello, we're the social movement that's here to uh, help you do the right thing. And this is our business card, <laughs> you know, and you'll be getting more of these from us. Indeed. <laughs> and in fact, on. the next one of the next things that that, that we did um, mm -hmm. uh, was in San Francisco at BlackRock's headquarters there where I'd been working with a Liberian colleague who was uh, that evening about to receive the Goldman Environmental Prize, a very prestigious you know, environmental um, award for his activism in fighting a palm oil company in Liberia. And we organized a, a rally outside of BlackRock's headquarters, BlackRock being one of the top investors in this particular Liberian palm oil company. And I'm working with this you know, Liberian um, human rights lawyer who had actually been threatened with death and exiled for forced into exile from Liberia. And, um, I, you know, I'm asking him prior to this event, you know, if we were to 
dress up in some kind of costumes that represent uh, the biodiversity that's being destroyed in your country. Uh, what, what do you What do you think? And my colleague Alfred Brownell is his name. Um, Incredible guy, very brave. Yeah, um, and folks yeah. can look him up. Um, he's a you know Alfred Brownell is his name. He um, one of the uh, keystone species in the in the place where he is from is a pygmy hippo, a, a rare you know species of hippopotamus, and so. Alfred uh, suggests, let's all dress up as hippos. And I thought, well, how the, how's, <laughs> how's that going to work? Turns out you can get some very nice hippo masks online. And yes. um, so we did, uh, you know, maybe this sounds arrogant, but I believe we did the very first ever hippo die-in. Uh, I'm pretty sure. You, I, mean, I, I, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, that's a fair claim. I think, um, anyway. Yeah. Until I mean, if someone else out there has done it, you know, get in Please touch. Please let us know. Please yeah, we want to we want to compare notes on how your hippo die in went. So we had a whole bunch of folks dress up as hippos and um, die on the steps of Black Rock's headquarters. And um, I mean, that's germane to what we're talking about in the sense that we really are talking about, you know, uh, the the extinction of species that we don't even know exist, right? That's right. And uh, that's right. so following from that, uh, the hippo right. die-in at Black Rock in San Francisco, things really scaled up in terms of our campaign uh, on Black Rock. And in, you know, last... September, uh, youth all over the world declare a climate strike and they walk out of their schools and they're, you know, demanding that business as usual be brought to a halt and that, you know, global capital address the, the climate emergency. And um, great groups have just emerged, Extinction Rebellion, Youth versus Apocalypse, the Sunrise Movement, and among other companies, all of these groups decide that they are going to target BlackRock because they had heard, you know, from us and others that BlackRock is a, is a particularly large threat. So suddenly uh, you have protests in cities around the world, London, Stockholm, Tokyo, San Francisco, Washington, New York, at the headquarters of, of BlackRock. You have indigenous peoples from the Amazon, you know, showing up. You have, you know, youth from London, you know, burning things in front of BlackRock's offices. And you have, you know, tens of thousands of, of people essentially giving the finger to this firm um, f for its, uh, you know, its financing of fossil fuels and deforestation. And uh, consequently... You get the the media's you know suddenly aware of this problem. Consequently, it, it turns out uh, that the investment community, a lot of other um, you know financiers, especially the socially responsible investment community, uh, which is a thing, um, they have had sort of a long held um, distaste for and distrust of BlackRock because BlackRock talks about social responsibility, but in fact is an incredibly bad actor. And so the whole campaign sort of caught fire. And uh, in, um, in Davos at the World Economic Forum this year in 2020, just, you know, a month and a half before this coronavirus plague landed, uh, BlackRock came out with a public statement saying that they're going to make climate change central to their business model. And they're going to divest from coal. They're going to divest their active holdings from coal, um, and they're going to uh, create new climate-friendly investment products. 
And um, in terms of deforestation, they put out a statement on their how they engage with the agribusiness sector. It's completely insufficient and doesn't get there. Um, and so obviously the campaign will continue and is continuing. Um, but we, uh, you know, we being the global movements on this mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. got the world's largest money manager to, uh, you know, to buckle and to start changing its business model. Right. So there's basically, in terms of trying to build countermeasures for for this huge problem, you're trying to find a target and find real ways to put up, put some pressure to make these decisions change, you know, to make the to make the math go the other way for this actor, in a sense, when they do the math and crunch the numbers are like, not because it's the right thing all the time. I wish it was, you could just make a moral argument, but you have to make a real uh, campaign that puts real pressure on them and makes it just better for them to stop doing what they're doing and find another way to make money. Um, Indeed. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of half of it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what we, what I think of as stopping the bleeding, Mm -hmm. right? This is addressing, you know, finding the, the powerful entities that are driving the destruction and forcing them to stop one way or another. And then of course the other piece um, that needs to happening, happen and is happening is restoration of damaged ecosystems and forcing companies not only to stop destroying, but to, integrate into their business models, you know, restoration of damaged ecosystems. Right, right. And, because we're in yeah. enough trouble now uh, that it's not enough to slow down the, the destruction. We have to roll it back. Uh, we have to begin yeah. to repair the damage. Yeah. yeah. You've got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. Jeff, I want to thank you so much, uh, both for the work you're doing and that your organization and your movement of movements is doing in the world, uh, addressing this particular social plague um, and possibly, if we succeed, uh, preventing further waves of pandemics like coronavirus, the result of this uh, rainforest destruction and habitat destruction. Um, Now, something that I was very inspired by over the years is your poetry and your writing, you know, and of course, as a, as a career activist, you've done amazing work over the years, but I loved your book about the Zapatistas. People go check it out for real. Um, and your other work as well. And I've read some of your poems and I've actually heard you had been fortunate enough to hear you, uh, read poems at different events. And it's wonderful that I, I think these are the cultural track and the straight up political track feed each other. I think there's a great feedback system both within ourselves as artist activists and also just a movement is healthier when it has both a cultural aspect and just a straight up hard hitting political organizing aspect. And I think you embody that. So I I was very happy to learn that you've created an entire new project Uh, and can you tell us about the bestiary and tell us, and, and I'd love to hear some of the poems. And uh, I think the listeners will, too. So maybe you could just introduce what this project is and how it started, and then we can hear some of it. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, Essentially, I mean, something we didn't exactly say Mm -hmm. yet is in terms of the destruction of biodiversity. Mm -hmm. You know, that's its own 
massive plague. We're in the midst of what you know what what's being called the sixth mass extinction. We haven't seen you know the 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 number of species that are going extinct right now is unprecedented since the the what the twilight of the dinosaurs. You know, um, biologists are saying uh, extinction rates right now are a thousand times the normal rate. Um, You know, so species are dying, you know, before our eyes. And it's funny because I've never been, you know, particularly focused on um, on animal rights, to to put it in that term. But a few years ago, I realized... um, that it would be, well, I just started writing poems to some of the species that are going extinct, um, partly as an effort to learn about them myself, um, you know, and sort of honor them in their passing, to remember them. And part of it is, you know, speaking of sort of cultural interventions, one of the things, you know, we're in this incredibly dark time, and we're in a time when you know, natural systems around us are are literally dying. And one of the things that our culture is extremely bad at is is grieving, mm. is mourning. And um, I actually believe that the ability to grieve is, you know, is, an, is a very important human function, a very important cultural function. And our inability to face death... Um, whether we're talking about, you know, our relatives, our own mortality, or the deaths of all of the beings around us who we're unwittingly killing. Um, I think our, un, 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 our inability to face that head on uh, just perpetuates the problem, perpetuates the violence. And so I started um, studying and writing about particular species that are have gone and are going extinct or are endangered. And um, after getting a handful of these poems on paper, I realized that you know it's, it's a very therapeutic project. But also, I think there's a lot of beauty involved in what I'm trying to do, and I'm calling the. It's uh, basically a book now. Um, I call it Bestiary for the End Times. Mm. Uh, elegies for the extinct, endangered, and extinguished, and um, trying to dig into, you know, who are these animals that have gone extinct that most of us have never seen? Animals, trees, you know, other life forms. Um, let's let's take a minute to to recognize them, to honor them, to write about them. In some cases, I'm writing sort of very documentary style poems, if you will, where I'll go to, you know, the newspaper article in the New York Times about the last Sumatran rhino, which died last November. Um, And, you know, kind of cutting and pasting bits of the news article and, you know, turning it into poetry. In other cases, it's much more, uh, I don't know, lyrical, if you will. Um, So that's the project. It's uh, important work. And I think you're making a good point about our our lack of knowledge of how to mourn. and I think you, in mourning something, you you also acknowledge its preciousness and its value. And as a society, we're not doing that either with these species. So um, I'd love to hear. Can you? Would you be willing to read some of the poems from the bestiary to us? I suppose it would defeat the purpose of uh, this podcast if I did. exactly so. right. <laughs> I can't say no. Um, yeah, let me, I'll start with one that's uh, a sort of introductory. Um, it's called Animals K. 
came from over the horizon. Why look at these animals now? These animals' lives are secrets, burned away so that only vague shapes remain, puzzle pieces in driftwood, charred and floating. In their lives, some were tiny as spores under the peeled paint of a windowsill, others large as comets standing for decades beside the moon, a constant seeming star. As they began to leave us, some animals grew distant, and in their distance they made us taste our hatefulness. Others drew too close and reminded us of our failures, too many to count. However we were, the animals began to disappear, and their disappearance is everywhere with us. Mm. So, yeah, that one is a little bit mm. of a, you know, sort of setting the stage, That's I suppose, right. if you Bringing will. Bringing us in to the project. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let me read one about um, directly related to what we're talking about. Um, the palm oil industry is most rampant in Indonesia. And in 2015, I had the chance to actually uh, travel through some of the rainforests of, of Borneo in Indonesia uh, during the height of uh, the worst forest fires that uh, that they'd ever seen. Um, and I witnessed orangutans living in the trees, flee, literally fleeing uh, from forest fires. Um, and so this one is called Oranopithecus. You, forest man, orangutan, I'm asking, where did you go? Fourteen million years ago you joined us, and now you're leaving? I think not. There was a man called Oranopithecus, an old forager in the treetops. Look, an old Napoleon, grown shrunk and woolly. He would cast himself from limb to limb in the great green empire of the jungle, gleaning fruit and bark and leaves and crunchy arthropods. From dawn to dusk, he did his thing. Together with his wife, Oranopithecus, he went on living uneventfully, slowly crafting nests of dense and knotted foliage in the treetops, raising babies in the forest canopy, drinking of the mist that matted his fur and juiced his limbs, watching the rivers roll by, their succulent fishes flopping silver, speared by the sun's savage blades of light. And when he sang, his voice seduced the seeds' hard vegetal bodies to split and sprout wild small tendrils that swang into the treetops like monkeys. Oh, you ageless wizard of the most ancient forests of the world, 14 million years ago you joined us and now you're leaving? I beg to disagree. The plantations eat you up, their fires erase entire islands of you, the agrochemicals blaze, turning your gently woven nest to a toxic tangle, that dry industry evaporating the dew that mists your hundred million eyes, scorching the liquid of your song that always woke the birds and kissed the trees to life. No, my friend, we'll stop those motherfuckers from destroying you if it's the last thing we ever do. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That one's for Larry Fink. That's um, a good That's for his portfolio. <laughs> that's right. Wonderful. Invest in this, my friend. <laughs> no, really. Uh, yeah. The def- we need the defiance, too, right? I think we need the defiance, yeah. too. We want to mourn and defy. Don't mourn organize, right? 
Yeah. All right. Let's hear another one. All right. Let's see. Um, you know, uh, the Gulf shrimp is on the edge of extinction, largely thanks to the uh, the uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill that devastated the Gulf of Mexico. So this is for the Gulf shrimp. Yeah. Morning darkens the sea, dispossessed of her whales, her cod, her Gulf shrimp. Even so, the rough oily waves reclaim them in skeletons and shells, and they become the sea's strange new bones. Even so, the Gulf shrimp's tiny eyelids open like dawn in the swelling brine among the plastic jetsam there. The shrimp's heart is the size of an atom, a molecule beating on the sea floor, barely shielded in its chitinous wrapping, her eyes more ancient than this world. Let the oily sea reclaim her then. Let her hard skin defend the ocean's tender, swollen, beating, broken heart. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard people uh, minimize on sort of like corporate TV the devastation of the BP oil spill. That's almost part of a narrative I've I've heard. It's like, oh, it wasn't that bad. And I don't, I still don't understand how one says that with a straight face. Yeah, Yeah, indeed. I mean, we know it. I mean, as it devastates the the fish, it devastates the fisheries, right? Mm -hmm. It threw the whole, you know, the the whole fishing industry out of work. Um, And so that's, I mean, that's the human part. But that's part of why this, this, I mean, people can minimize something like that because they don't understand. So so there's no more Gulf shrimp, you know. So what? How does that affect me? Right. You know, it turns out that um, these beings hold mysteries, you know, so far beyond our ability to understand mm-hmm. that um, that's, that's what this project is about, is to remind us, you know, what we lose when we lose any of these, any of these cre- creatures. Right. It's, it's destroying what we don't understand and often for the most trivial of uh, appetites. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm including myself in there. I'm not, it's not coming from a self-righteous place. It's just recognizing the problem within and without. So. Jeff, you want to do another one? How are you, how are you feeling? I would love to do a few yeah, more. There's good. one that I want to, I'm sort of trying to build up to Great. here, if you don't yeah, mind, uh, a couple more. Um, here's, I think a lot of folks, I just recently read The Overstory, um, by Richard Powers. It was a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, came out last year, that is um, amazing book, uh, essentially addressing the, the power of trees. Um, the trees are sort of, it sounds hokey, but the trees are sort of the main characters in the book. Um, and the book starts out uh, with a, a, a section, um, it's focused around the American chestnut, which um, was the sort of dominant species in the eastern woodlands and went extinct um, throughout the 20th century. Um, So this is uh, for the American chestnut. And you too I've never seen, pushing your hundredfold hands against the emptied firmament, not seen great bonfires encircled in small clearings in the woods where centuries of children sang to you, your charred seed pods comforting beyond words and rich as honeyed earth, 
your lush oysters slipping from their spiny shells beneath those scalloped sawtoothed leaves that scratched the clouds to tickle down the rain and bear enchanted aisles of tusky growth in a milky sea of grass afloat with creamy blossoms fresh as children's flesh now cloistered in the blight that blackens you from your dendrites to your failing flocks. Even the birds abandoned you, your skies raining a vaporous silence. But you, you wait. Keep still, forever in the winter of your days, spent dreaming of the beauty you'll sprout when at last your springtime comes. Oh. Yeah. Mm Um, so yeah, part of the, I mean, these are, uh, there's, there's, I'm trying to capture, you know, the grief also trying to capture a little bit of hope. You know, someone told me the other day as I was sharing this project with them that there's a, a belief, um, out there that, uh, you know, just because science doesn't find these species, these critters anymore and says they're extinct. Well, there's still a, a, an American chestnut sized hole in the ecosphere mm-hmm. And maybe the conditions can be created where, where she comes back. Well, what we found is by the shutdown of so much economic activity during this pandemic is that even now, even after just a, a, a few weeks or months across the world, there has been some healing. Uh, because yeah, exactly. Keeps we get out of the way, itself. and you know, yeah. nature. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Maybe maybe there will be some regrowth. Yeah. Um, Maybe I could do just uh, two more. Wonderful, please. Um, If that's not, thank you. This one, um, there was a great poet. I sort of ripped this off from him in some ways, or you know, copied his uh, his style here. There was a a great poet named Nanao Sakaki, a Japanese poet who um, was very interesting character. He was uh, he was responsible for. a radar station in Japan in World War II, and he was tracking the bombers, the American bombers, as they would come in and, and bomb the cities. And he uh, was apparently one of the first to uh, to track the uh, the Enola Gay that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And uh, after World War II, he became an itinerant vagabond hippie Taoist poet. Um, and uh, look him up, Nanao Sakaki is his name. And this is a little bit of an homage to him called Come On Rain. Um, because, of course, here in California, rain itself is, is an endangered species. I listen to rain falling on a rotting thatched roof. I listen to rain falling in a mildewed concrete cistern. I listen to rain falling into thickets of mountain laurel. I listen to rain falling onto a slanting, tired earth. I listen to rain falling on the Niger Delta's sluggish, smoking black waters, on Jadugada's uranium caverns, on the poisoned wheat fields of Sonora, on the leaning concrete blocks of Bhopal, the garden city. I listen to rain falling on the rebirth of the California condor among granite pinnacles. I listen to rain falling on the warm updrafts of plankton who draw down the invisible smoke of the Atlantic. I listen to rain falling on the favela portraits staring skyward, 
on the Navajo sheep starved of grass, on the white corals of Okinawa, by the island fortress of Alcatraz, where the artist Ai Weiwei sleeps his dragon kites and Lego blocks, I listen to rain falling into the peg-legged sea. In the steel and glass wasteland of Jakarta, I listen to rain falling on bankers' synthetic suits. In midtown Manhattan, I listen to rain filtering through to the asphalt-encrusted earth. In Fresno and Hollister, land of agrochemical flowers blooming, I listen to the rain falling, if only it would fall, into the basin of flames, into the cradle of ashes. In the rain, you can hear the thunder laughing. Come on, rain. It rain falls on all of us, even those synthetic suits. <laughs> and we've had that feeling in California a lot as the climate disaster keeps destabilizing everything, right? Just literally staring at the sky and saying, give us a break. I know it's our fault, but come on. Yeah. yeah. And of course, that's, I mean, now this is, you know, we're seeing cascading crises. And this is one of the things that is terrifying all of us, I think, in California is, uh, you know, it's March right now, we're, 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 or April, we're locked down because of coronavirus. By, you know, August, September, fire season begins. What happens if we have the same kind of wildfires this year we've had for the last two years? Right. During a pandemic. Oof. Right. Yeah. I think it's a really good point. And everything that this profit-motivated system is bringing on itself that has to change, it keeps uh, increasing and combining exponentially. Um, just at, symbolically connecting to that, I, I have a mask that I can wear outside. Uh, and, you know, there was a shortage of masks. Now, I didn't buy it just now and stop a medical professional from getting it. It's my mask from the last apocalypse here from the big forest fires. You know, yeah, so it's, like, it's become the uh, the accoutrement of the apocalypse here in California and now everywhere. Jeff, give us another one, please. Yeah, thanks. Some of these, uh, some of them I try to sort of, in, I don't know, I'm trying to keep myself entertained yeah. here. Um, so, you know, they're, they're sort of grief-filled and so forth and rather heavy, but sometimes I try to come up with these goofy uh, little rhyme mm -hmm. schemes and so forth. Um, so prepare for that with this one. This is um, the last Sumatran rhino in Malaysia. Uh, which is sort of drawn from a news article. There's a quote, the wildlife officials in Malaysia are mourning the death of Iman, the country's last Sumatran rhino, November 24th, 2019. The last Sumatran rhino in Malaysia up and died as wildfires snuffed the oxygen with the peatlands drained and dried. The cancer in her ovaries put too much pressure on her bladder. Her caretakers could only watch her fading and grow sadder. As four more Sumatran rhinos had succumbed the past four years, forcing rhino lovers everywhere to reckon with their fears. Scientists had tried to breed her with an Indonesian male, but his sperm just wasn't viable. Her eggs were just too frail. All but 80 of their cousins have already gone extinct, and the rest are either held in zoos or else are on the brink. 
Their killers hunt them for their horns, which act as medicine, just like our hair and fingernails composed of keratin for fevers or convulsions, or they say fertility. But I'd propose if I could choose to breed no more like me, I'd suggest it's time we let the rhinos have their turn. Let's us die off and give them space and come back when we've learned. So ask me no more questions and I'll tell you no more lies. I propose we stop the show and recognize our time to go before one more rhino dies. Yeah. Boom. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for bringing it to us, Jeff, and thanks for this amazing combination of giving these elegies to these species, but embracing that concept of don't mourn organize or do mourn and organize. Actually, yeah, in this case, it's, let's mourn and organize. Yeah, yeah. the mourning uh, help us let our <laughs> Yeah, let our organizing be uh, an expression of our grief. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as our joy, yeah. you know, that we are alive and that our gratitude for having been given this one wild and precious life. Let's get out there and defend That's it. That's right. And use that, use that opportunity that that life gives us to be part of this movement. Um, Jeff Conant, thank you so much for sharing your analysis, telling us about how you do what you do, and just a precious sliver of your creativity and your cultural work as well as a poet. Um, maybe we'll have you on again. <laughs> if, yeah, let's just do this. Let's just keep doing this. Uh, let's just try to live another day, Larry. Uh, <laughs> Taking a day know. at a time in this time of pandemic of the plague. Um, Jeff Conant, thank you very much. And uh, you've been listening to the plague podcast. Uh, today's uh, topic was the destruction of the rainforest and of biodiversity and how it affects the pandemic plague we're in right now and what we can try to do about it. Uh, our guest was Jeff Conant. I'm LM Bogad. You can learn a little bit more about my work and my books and strange performance art at lmbogad.com.